Christ is risen. Indeed, he is risen. Hello everyone and welcome back to this week's episode of the Divine Lantern. With the blessing of his eminence, Metropolitan Basilios, the Antiochian Orthodox Archdiocese presents a podcast to educate, empower and enrich. I'm Alana from the Antiochian Christian Orthodox Youth and I'll be your host for this week's episode. Today we'll be hearing a homily by Saint Cyril of Jerusalem on the paralytic at the pool. We'll also learn about the difference in the roles of a deacon, priest, bishop and patriarch through our weekly Q&A, and then listen to a reading from our Orthodox Library. As always, if you have a question you would like answered on the Orthodox faith, please send through an email to tdl at antiochian.org.au. For now, let's begin, and we hope that you enjoy this episode. At that time, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, in Hebrew called Bethesda, which has five porticos. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and troubled the water. Whoever stepped in first after the troubling of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. One man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him and knew that he had been lying there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is troubled, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your pallet and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his pallet and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath, it is not lawful for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, The man who healed me said to me, Take up your pallet and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your pallet and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse befall you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. A homily on the paralytic at the pool by St. Cyril of Jerusalem. Wherever Jesus appears, there is salvation. If he sees a revenue officer sitting in his office, he makes him an apostle and evangelist. Laid in the grave, he raises the dead to life. He bestows sight on the blind, hearing on the deaf. When, as now, he visits the public baths, it is not out of interest in the architecture, but to heal the sick. By the sheep market in Jerusalem, there used to be a pool with five colonnades, four of which enclosed the pool, while the fifth spanned at midway. Here, large numbers of sick would lie. Unbelief also was rise among the Jews. The physician and healer of both souls and bodies showed fairness in choosing this chronic sufferer to be the first recipient of his gift, that he might the earlier be released from his pains. 
for not for one day only, nor for two, had the poor man lain on his bed of sickness. Nor was it now the first month, no, nor the first year, but for eight and thirty years. His long-standing illness, rendering him a figure familiar to passers-by, now made him ocular evidence of the power of his healer, for the paralytic was known to all by reason of the length of time. But though the master physician gave proof of his skill, he was rebuffed by those who put an unfavourable construction on his work of mercy. As he walked round the pool, he saw. He did not elicit the information by asking questions, for his divine power obviated any such need. Not asking, but seeing how long the invalid had lain there. Seeing, he knew. Indeed he knew before he saw, for if, in the case of secrets of the heart, he had no need to question any one concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Much more was this the case when it was a question of diagnosing diseases with visible symptoms. He saw a bedridden man weighed down by a sore sickness, for the paralytic's heavy load of sins aggravated the long-drawn agony of the disease. A question addressed to the sufferer hinted to him his need, Wilt thou be healed? Not a word more. He left him with the question half-spoken, for the question was ambiguous. It was because he was sick not only in body, but also in soul. Compare his later saying, Behold, thou art cured, sin no more, lest something worse befall thee. That he asked him, Do you want to be healed? What mighty power that implied in the physician, making relief depend only on the patient's willing? It is because salvation is from faith that he asked, Do you want to be healed? That his yes might give Jesus his cue. This, wilt thou, is the word of Jesus only. It belongs not to doctors who heal the body. For those who treat bodily ailments cannot say to any and every patient, Wilt thou be healed? But Jesus grants the will, accepts the faith, and freely bestows the gift. Once, when the Saviour was passing by, two blind men were sitting by the roadside. Though their bodily eyes were sightless, their minds were open to the light. The blind men pointed out him whom the scribes did not recognise. For the Pharisees who, for all that they had been taught the law, yes, had studied it from childhood to old age, had nevertheless grown old still uncomprehending, now said, As for this man, we do not know where he comes from. For he came unto his own, and his own received him not. But the blind men kept on crying out, Son of David, have mercy on us. Those whose eyes did not serve them to read knew him whom the students of the law failed to recognize. Going up to them, the Saviour said, Do you believe that I can do this for you? And what will you have me do for you? He did not say, What will you have me say to you? But, What will you have me do for you? For he was a doer, a maker, a giver of life too, not now beginning to do for the first time, for his father works always, and he works with his father. He was the maker of the whole world at his father's command, alone begotten, without intermediary, of the alone. He questions the blind men, saying, What will you have me do for you? Not that he did not know what they wanted, for it was obvious, but he chose to make his gift depend on their answer, that they might be justified out of their own mouths. The reader of hearts could not be ignorant what they would say, 
but he waited upon their words. Now his question was their cue. He stood by the cripple. The doctor visited the sick man, nor is it so strange that he condescended to attend the invalid by the pool. For had he not visited us from heaven? He asked him, Wilt thou be healed? By the question leading him on towards the saving knowledge, raising a question in his mind. A gift, truly, of grace. No fee was charged, else the patient would not have had the physician coming to him. He said to him, Yes, sir, for the long duration of my illness makes me desire health, but desire it as I may, I have no man. Do not lose heart, my good fellow, because you have no man. God you have standing by you, one who is at once man and God under different aspects, for both must be confessed. The confession of the humanity without the confession of the divinity is unavailing, or rather, earns a curse. For cursed is he who puts his trust in man. So with us, if hoping in Jesus we hope in the man only, not including the divinity, we inherit the curse. But as it is, we confess both God and man, and both truly, in worshipping him as God, truly begotten of the true Father, and as man not merely in appearance, but really and truly born, we receive a real and true salvation. Yes, I do want to be healed, but I have no man. Maybe it was because of his dire straits that Jesus came to his rescue. For the generality of the sick had relatives, friends too, and maybe other helpers. But the poor cripple, crushed by a literally universal want, utterly destitute, abandoned, alone, found the Son of God, the only begotten, coming to his aid. Wilt thou be healed? Yes, Lord, but I have no man, when the water is troubled, to put me into the pool. No, but you have the spring itself, for with thee is the fountain of life, the fountainhead of all fountains. He who drinks of this water, out of his belly shall flow rivers, not of the water that flows downwards, but of that water that springs up. For the spring inspired by Jesus' draught, unlike man's puny leap which lands him back on earth again, carries us up to the sky. The water bubbles up unto life everlasting. Jesus is the wellspring of all blessings. Why then fix your hope on a pool? You have him who walks upon the waters, who rebukes the winds, who holds sovereign sway over the ocean, who not only himself walked on the sea as on a firm pavement, but vouchsafed the like power to Peter. For when the night was black and the light, though it was there, was not recognised, for Jesus walking on the waters passed unrecognised in face and features, it was the characteristic timbre of his voice that betrayed his presence. They, thinking they were seeing an apparition, were frightened until Jesus said to them, I am, do not be afraid. Peter said to him, If it be thou whom I know, or rather whom the Father revealed to me, bid me come to thee over the waters. And Christ, generously sharing what was his own, said, Come. There stood by the waters of the pool the ruler and maker of the waters. To him the cripple said, I have no man, when the water is troubled, to put me into the pool. The Saviour said to him, Why do you await the troubling of the water, when you can be cured with no trouble at all? Why wait for the movement that is seen? More swiftly is the mind's command performed by the word. 
only look down into the swirling power of the spring and glimpse there God clothed in flesh. Consider not the man whom your eyes see, but the invisible God who works through him whom you see. I have no man, when the water is troubled, to put me into the pool. He said to him, Why set such narrow bounds to hope, intent on some poor water cure? Arise, he who commands it is the resurrection. Everywhere the Saviour becomes all things to all men, to the hungry, bread, to the thirsty, water, to the dead, resurrection, to the sick, a physician, to sinners, redemption. And now for the Philokalia. Take your weekly spiritual dose and reflect on the words of our holy Naptic Fathers. Why was man created? In order that, by apprehending God's creatures, he might contemplate and glorify him who created them for man's sake. Saint Anthony the Great Faith without works and works without faith will both alike be condemned. For he who has faith must offer to the Lord the faith which shows itself in actions. Our father Abraham would not have been counted righteous because of his faith had he not offered its fruit, his son, Saint Diodorus of Fotiki. There is one God, because the Father is the begetter of the unique Son and the fount of the Holy Spirit, one without confusion and three without division. The Father is an original intellect, the unique essential begetter of the unique Logos, also unoriginate and the fount of the unique everlasting life, the Holy Spirit. Saint Maximus the Confessor. On May 7, in the Holy Orthodox Church, we commemorate the appearance of the sign of the precious cross in the heavens above Jerusalem and martyr Achaikios the Centurion at Byzantium. On this day, the fourth Sunday of Pascha, we commemorate the paralytic and, as is right, we celebrate the miracle wrought for him. The word of Christ was strength for the paralytic, so that this word alone was the man's full healing. Jesus healed the paralytic at the sheep's pool located near the sheep's gate of Jerusalem, where people sacrificed their beasts and washed their insides. The pool had five sides with a porch and arch on each. A number of people afflicted with various diseases passed through them, waiting at the water for an angel to come down and stir it. Once it moved, whoever stepped into the water first was instantly healed. One poor man, whose story is recounted in today's Gospel lection in the Divine Liturgy, waited 38 years for someone to lower him into the water because he was unable to move into the water himself. However, the Saviour merely commanded the man to get up and walk, and he was healed. In thine infinite mercy, O Christ our God, have mercy on us. Amen. What is the difference between the roles of a deacon, priest, bishop, and patriarch?
It is the belief of the Orthodox Christians that Christ is the only priest, pastor and teacher of the Christian Church. He alone guides and rules his people. He alone forgives sins and offers communion with God, his Father. It is also the Orthodox belief that Christ has not abandoned his people, but that he remains with his Church as its living and unique head. Christ remains present and active in the Church through his Holy Spirit. The bishops, priests and deacons of the church have no other function or service than to manifest the presence and action of Christ to his people. In this sense, the clergy do not act in behalf of Christ or instead of Christ as though he himself were absent. They are neither substitutes for Christ nor representatives of Christ. Christ is present now, always and forever in the church. The sacramental ministry of the church, the bishops, priests and deacons receive the gift of the Holy Spirit to manifest Christ in the spirit to men. Through his chosen ministers, Christ exercises and realizes his unique and exclusive function as a priest, perpetually offering himself as the perfect sacrifice to the Father on behalf of his human brothers and sisters. Through his ministers in the church, Christ also acts as a teacher, himself proclaiming the divine words of the Father to men. He acts as the Good Shepherd, the one pastor who guides his flock. He acts as the forgiver and healer, remitting sins and curing the ills of men, physical, mental and spiritual. He acts as a bishop, overseeing the community which he has gathered for himself, as said in Peter 1 verses 2-25, For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. He acts as a deacon, meaning a servant or minister, for he alone is the suffering servant of the Father who has come, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. As the apostles received the special gift of God to go forth and to make Christ present to men in all the manifold aspects of his person and work, so the clergy of the church received the gift of God's Spirit to maintain and to manifest Christ's presence and action in the churches. The bishops are the leading members of the clergy in the sense that they have the responsibility and service of maintaining the unity of the church throughout the world by ensuring the truth and unity of the faith and practice of their respective churches with all the others. Thus, the bishops represent their churches or dioceses to the other churches or dioceses, just as they represent the universal church to their own priests, deacons and people. As the head of the diocese, the bishop appoints priests and deacons to different parishes and is the chief liturgical celebrant in the diocese. The word bishop means overseer. He is the one who is responsible and answerable before God and man for the life of his church community. A bishop of the chief city of a region, which has within its other bishops with their own diocese, is usually called the metropolitan or archbishop. Metropolitan meaning bishop of the metropolis, the main city, 
an archbishop meaning leading bishop of an area. The title of Patriarch belongs to the bishop of the capital city of a region containing other metropolitans and dioceses. The priests in the church are assigned by the bishop and belong to the specific congregations which they serve. No one receives the gift of the priesthood personally or individually. Apart from his bishop and his own parish community, the priest has no powers and indeed no services to perform. Thus, on the altar table of each Christian community, headed by the priest as pastor, there is the oath called the anti-mention, signed by the priest, which is the permission to the community to gather and to act as the Church of God. Without the anti-mention, the priest and his people cannot function legitimately and the actions of the assembly cannot be considered as being authentically of the church. The deacons of the church originally assisted the bishops in good deeds and works of charity. In the office of deacon, the men may now not only assist the priest and bishop in liturgical services, but will often head educational programs and youth groups, do hospital visitation and missionary work, and conduct projects of social welfare. The church's rules about marriage are the same for the deacons as they are for the priests. Although Orthodox clergy are given considerable honour by the Orthodox Church, each ordination is also viewed as a kind of martyrdom. The Orthodox clergymen agree to be a servant of both Jesus Christ and of the people of the church. Many of the vestments are intended to remind him of this. Much is expected of the clergy, both practically and spiritually, Consequently, they also have a special place in the litanies that are prayed, asking God to have mercy on them. And now a reading from our Orthodox Library. The Orthodox Faith, Volume 1, Doctrine and Scripture by Father Thomas Hopko. The symbol of faith, I believe. Faith is the foundation of Christian life. It is the fundamental virtue of Abraham, the forefather of Israel and the Christian church. Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Genesis 15, 6. Jesus begins his ministry with the same command for faith. Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Mark 1.15 All through his life, Jesus was calling for faith. Faith in himself, faith in God his Father, faith in the gospel, faith in the kingdom of God. The fundamental condition of the Christian life is faith. For with faith come hope and love and every good work and every good gift and power of the Holy Spirit. This is the doctrine of Christ, the Apostles, and the Church. In the Scriptures, faith is classically defined as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Hebrews 11.1 1. There are basically two aspects to faith. One might even say two meanings of faith. The first is faith in something, or someone. Faith as the recognition of these persons or things as real, true, genuine and valuable. For example, faith in God, in Christ, in the Holy Trinity, in the Church. 
The second is faith in the sense of trust or reliance. In this sense, for example, one would not merely believe in God, in his existence, goodness and truth, but one would believe God, trust his word, rely upon his presence, depend securely and with conviction upon his promises. For Christians, both types of faith are necessary. One must believe in certain things with mind, heart and soul, and then they live by them in the course of everyday life. Faith is sometimes opposed to reason and belief to knowledge. According to orthodoxy, faith and reason, belief and knowledge are indeed two different things. They are two different things, however, which always belong together and which may never be opposed to each other or separated from each other. In the first place, one cannot believe anything which he does not already somehow know. A person cannot possibly believe in something he knows nothing about. Secondly, what one believes in and trusts must be reasonable. If asked to believe in the divinity of a cow or to place one's trust in a wooden idol, one would refuse on the basis it is not reasonable to do so. Thus, faith must have its reasons. It must be built upon knowledge. It must never be blind. Thirdly, knowledge itself is often built upon faith. One cannot come to knowledge through absolute skepticism. If anything is known at all, it is because there exists a certain faith in man's knowing possibilities and a real trust that the objects of knowledge are really showing themselves and that the mind and the senses are not acting deceitfully. Also, in relation to almost all written words, particularly those which relate to history, the reader is called to act of faith. He must believe that the author is telling the truth and therefore he must have certain knowledge and certain reasons for giving his trust. Very often, it is only when one does give his trust and does believe something that one is able to go further, so to speak, and to come finally to knowledge of his own and to the understanding of things he would never have understood before. It is true to say that certain things always remain obscure and meaningless unless they are viewed in the light of faith, which then provides a way of explaining and understanding their existence and meaning. Thus, for example, the phenomena of suffering and death would be understood differently by one who believes in Christ than by one who believes in some other religion or philosophy or in none at all. Faith is always personal. Each person must believe for himself. No one can believe for another. Many people may believe and trust the same things because of a unity of their knowledge, reason, experience and convictions. There can be a community of faith and a unity of faith. But this community and unity necessarily begins and rests upon the confession of personal faith. For this reason, the symbol of faith in the Orthodox Church not only at baptisms and official rituals of joining the church, but also in common prayers and in the divine liturgy, always remains in the first person. If we can pray, offer, sing praise, ask, bless, rejoice, and commend ourselves and each other to God in the church and as the church, it is only because each one of us can say honestly, sincerely, and with prayerful conviction, 
Lord, I believe. Adding, as one must, the words of the man in the gospel, Help my unbelief. Mark 9, 24 In order for our faith to be genuine, we must express it in everyday life. We must act according to our faith and prove it by the goodness and power of God acting in our lives. This does not mean that we tempt God or put God to the test by doing foolish and unnecessary things just for the sake of seeing if God will participate in our foolishness. But it does mean that if we live by faith in our pursuit of righteousness, we can demonstrate the fact that God will be with us, helping and guiding us in every way. For faith to grow and become stronger, it must be used. Each person should live according to the measure of faith which he has, however small, weak and imperfect it might be. By acting according to one's faith, trusting God and the certitude of God's presence is given, and with the help of God, many things which were never before imagined become possible. Thank you all for tuning in to another episode of The Divine Lantern. For all the latest news and updates on our Archdiocese, please visit antiochian.org.au. Another reminder that if you would like your question answered on the Orthodox faith, please email it through to tdl at antiochian.org.au. Have a blessed day and we hope to catch you all next week. Christ is risen. Indeed, he is risen.